Welcome. Welcome to all of those that are worshiping online. I'm back preaching after a month. It's so good to be home. Thank you. Um, We're in the fifth of the six-week series from the letter um, written to the Church of Ephesus called Ephesians. I just love this book so much. One of my favorite books in the Bible. And uh, what I want to do is two things today. I want to highlight um, the, the exhilarating moments that Paul gives to us in each of the chapters. I'm going to do a little overview of where we are and entering then into chapter five. I'm going to give a real practical ending to marriage and what it means to step into marriage. I'm going to do that in the conclusion um, part of my message. But uh, I'm, I'm really glad that I can be back. I'm sitting, you can tell that. For many of you know that I've had uh, a knee replacement surgery over the last month. And, uh, you know, I did it because I'm bone on bone in my right knee and the quality of my life was just severely impacted. And it became really clear to me last uh, March, just this past March, because my daughter got married. I've got a photo here of us dancing. And we had so much fun. And it looks like I'm just moving and grooving, but I'm just telling you I wasn't. I was grimacing, and yet I'd put my best face on for my daughter because I, I, I wanted to have more freedom, but I gave it all that I had in that given moment, and we did have a great time. So I had the knee replaced, and what they do is really fascinating to me. They come into the knee, and they take out a part of your bone and uh, the bad stuff that's in there, and they replace it with a new part. It's astonishing the time in which we live today that they're able to do it. And a humorous moment for me actually came after the surgery and my surgeon came in just to check on me the first time he came to check on me. And one of the things he said to me, he says, do you remember what you said during surgery? Like when I was under surgery. I go, oh, oh. I go, over the last couple of years, there's a lot of things that might have come out that maybe I wouldn't want to have come out. I've never told anybody any of these things. They're just deep within my soul. He said, no, 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 it was all appropriate. When they started the surgery and going in, my knee moved, and I apparently just quickened and said calmly, more pain block, please. <laughs> so I go, that's a good request just for the all of life, um, but... They actually did. So now over the past month, I'm learning how to walk again, and it's been a good journey for me, and I'm on a good path right now, good trajectory moving forward, and I'm learning to trust the new part that's been put inside of my body. That's what it comes down to. My surgeon in that moment also said something, and I've not forgotten. I've ruminated on it again and again. He said, you're going to love the outcome, and I trust him, and I'm already on that way to say, I believe that's going to be my reality And then as I reflected on it, I go, that's really a beautiful spiritual analogy too. We live in such a broken world. We have a broken nation. We have broken relationships. There's a sense in which we're bone on bone with pain in terms of sin in our nation, in our lives. And there's so much brokenness. And then you open up the the scriptures and you read words like Paul who says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And I liken that to say when you put your faith in Christ, you get a new part. In essence, it's a new person. The person of Jesus Christ himself comes to dwell in you through the Holy Spirit. And you learn to walk again. But this time, not according to the ways of the flesh, your will and your desires, but the way of the Spirit, according to God's way and God's will. And Jesus has this promise. You're going to love the outcome. And I trust him. You're going to get a quality of life that is filled with abundance. And that has happened in my journey of faith in Christ. And I know it has for many of you as well. And so Paul is teaching us um, the how we 
learn this new walk with the Spirit. It's a new walk in which the old ways put aside and we walk in the new way with Christ. So much of Ephesians is down into the detail of what that new walk looks like. And that's where we've given a lot of our best energy over the last few weeks. But I don't want you to miss the why behind, behind the how because Paul absolutely gets overjoyed, thrilled, enthralled by the bigger question of the why and how God is connecting the dots of the story from beginning to end in this little letter just in six chapters and he does it geniusly because in each chapter there's a sentence that Paul includes that's more of a meta narrative. You could say there's a 30,000 foot view that he's given concerning what God is doing in the big picture in the midst of all the details of learning what it is to walk the new walk with Jesus Christ. And what he does is he puts a sentence, what I could call a theme verse in each one. In fact, if you want a nice overview of Ephesians, memorize these theme verses. I'm going to take us to Ephesians 5, and we'll jump into it. I've entitled the message today, Beauty Rising, because beauty rises, doesn't it? It captures our heart and our attention. We want more of it. That's what Paul does. Beauty rises. He gives us the 33,000-foot view in order that we would understand the why behind the how. And I want to just touch base briefly on each of these key verses and then get to Ephesians 5 and a little bit about marriage. We start in Ephesians 1.10, which, by the way, it's Ephesians 1.10, 2.10, and 3.10. Makes it really easy for you to memorize if you want to move in that direction. He said, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. This is his delight. He's happy to do this, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So what he's bringing clarity to is he's bringing heaven and earth back together again in the original design and intent. And he reveals it through the coming of Jesus Christ because he knows that we have separated the two. By nature, we, in, we have separated the, the reality of heaven and earth. We think of heaven being way out there somewhere and it's not touching our way of life on earth. And he's about to correct all of this in the big picture. God is at move bringing the fullness of heaven to earth in this time in which we live. And what an amazing picture it is because how did we ever get to this place of separation? Well, we did in human history because we kicked God and his heaven upstairs, out of sight, so that we could claim rule in this earthly realm. And now we find the corrective measure because in the last great scene of the Bible, what you find is people are not making their way from earth to heaven. That's how we think it's going to be. That's not what the Bible says at all. In fact, we find the new Jerusalem is making its way from heaven to earth to make complete the heavenly realm that God originally designed and had before sin entered into the world so that we experience heaven even on earth. Here's the good news, is that Jesus ushered in the way of heaven when he came. This is the pleasure of God revealing this bigger picture that we would see that heaven has come to earth. We're in the process and when he comes again, he'll make full and complete. But what he's saying is that through this relationship that we have with Christ in us, this new part, this new person in us, we get to be part of the heaven on earth reality, putting back together what God originally started we get to live the way of heaven on earth. And you might say, Joel, I've never been to heaven. How would I know to live? So just, this is what Paul is saying. It's just masterful. No, you do know what heaven looks like. You have Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is equipping you to live heaven on earth now, which is why the radical way of Jesus is so profound, captures the attention in the world related to forgiveness or whatever the issues he's teaching us on throughout Ephesians and throughout the New Testament. So we step into this. Now, you may say as well, the skeptic in you, it may not look like 
Heaven on earth is a reality when you read the headlines of what's happening. And what's happening right now in just the last couple weeks, we just see the intense brokenness in our world that our nation is in utter mourning. The obscene loss of life that's happening in our own country right now, just, it riles you up. It just, I have not had a conversation this week with people who haven't turned into to tears in the midst of talking about what's happening in our country, May 14th, in a supermarket, in a supermarket, places we go every day, 10 people's lives are snuffed out because of a racist who has issue with people and takes them out. Or this past Tuesday, what we saw in Uvalde, Texas, I mean, how many anchors did you see this week who couldn't even tell the story? I'm feeling it now. I can't even tell the story of fourth graders, of 10-year-old kids who are not with their families this week because of the horrific killing that we saw take place there. Or we go into our own backyard in Mound, Minnesota, and just a shout out to our Mound folks, thank you so much for coming alongside and caring for the family. They had a prayer vigil Friday night out there for um, little Eli Hart, who was just, um, fortunately, his life was taken in the most horrific way. And we come around, we support his family as a church, because that's what we get to do. I'm just saying, at the end of this service, we're going to take a few moments and just create a little space before we leave here. And yes, we're mourning um, the loss of those who sacrificed their lives for our country, but we're mourning the condition of our country right now. And we're going to have a moment just to pray for these families who are dealing with so much loss. And we feel it. I feel it. You feel it too in your own heart as we're hearing these stories. How can this be in today's age? But it's, but it's there. And you can say, if this is what heaven and earth look like, something must be terribly wrong, and it is. But do not miss the meta-narrative, the big story of God connecting the dots because we're part of that, because we see in chapter one that through the power of Jesus Christ and the strength of the Holy Spirit, that the signs and the elements of this coming together of heaven and earth um, has, has been born in our midst, in our time and our place, so that love and peace that healing and hope are underway through those who know of God's love even today. It's actively taking place and it's being experienced even in our country in the midst of this despair. Yes, we groan and we long for the day when he comes again, but it's already underway right now. This big story, we're part of it. I think that's so important. It says, show up. We are followers of Jesus Christ. Do not make your Christianity about your own personal salvation and your own private discipleship, and the promise of heaven to come. No, we are called to show up, to engage in a world with heaven on earth through the power of Jesus Christ in us so that that peace and that love, that healing and that hope is experienced by the citizenry of this country so that the glory of God would be seen in and through you, the one who lives in you. That's an amen in most cultures. It's an amen. That's who we get to be. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He ushered it in. That's just chapter one. Um, And I've got a lot more to say. So let's go to two quickly. (laughs) How are we impacted by this? Well, Ephesians 2.10, highlight, 30,000 foot view. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. That when God breathed life into you, He had a unique purpose for you to make a difference as part of this heaven on earth reality that we're experiencing right now. 
And I love that word handiwork. In the Greek, it's poema, by which we get the word poem. That each of you individually is part of God's artwork. Um, that indeed, we find in the expression that he's given to us that we are the people whom he will make a difference by the art that he displays in and through us in this life and journey. I'm so glad. Jen Alexander was here, and I loved how she translated. She said that you are his masterpiece. You are his artwork, making a difference in the world in which we live. And then she said, marvel and mirror the masterpiece that God made you to be. we got to get rid of the psychology of self-esteem and embrace the power of Christ's esteem and our identity that we belong in the God who is loved, that he's created us as an art piece. Carrie and I were so touched. We were, I was in recovery, so we are watching online during that, that service, and she really touched us with that marvel and mirroring, saying, marvel that you're a masterpiece, mirror it to other people in your life. And so we've actively done that with our grandchildren, our children, our friends, our family, and said, you are God's masterpiece, and your artwork has made a difference in our life. Raise the bar of that intentionality. That's the behavior of heaven and earth coming together. Together and what a gift. Ephesians tells us in 1.10 that God is bringing heaven and earth together. Ephesians 2.10 that we are part of that plan. We're on the map of heaven and earth being played out in us and through us in the world in which we live. And then in 3.10, want to memorize these are great verses on the big picture, right? His intent was that now through the church, through the church, through the church, You think about the low view that we have of the church in our culture, but he's saying that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Wow. Raise the bar of your view. I talk about we get to be the church. Have a high view of the church because the manifold wisdom of God is being um, at work displayed through us through those who would want to mold us to think in different ways, fueled by sex and power and money, that that way of the world would become dominant through political structures and social structures. No, there's a kingdom structure, heaven that's come to earth, and we get to live that out so that the mystery of God's wisdom would be on display through you. And this beautiful picture that you have in here is this high view of God in this heavenly realm so that people will know that Jesus is Lord and we are not, they are not. These other forces at work are not. And in chapter three, that is followed by the picture. If we got heaven and earth coming together, now Jew and Gentile come together. And then you find in Ephesians 3.21, this other climax that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly more than all you could think or imagine in your life. And I guess it's so good. I, I try to think of so many good things that I would love to dream for God to do in my life. And he dreams greater things than ever I could dream. Because of he who is in me, my world opens up. The quality, quality of life just um, expands in great, great measure. And so I want to embrace the call of the great missionary who along the way gave us these words. William Carey, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Don't live a casual Christianity. That is not what God had in store for us. He had something magnificent. The mystery of his wisdom would unfold through us. Expect God to show up in your life and then attempt great things for God in his glory. We will not be a church in neutral. We will passively engage with God through the power of Christ who is in us, through the Holy Spirit to make a difference in the world to the honor and glory of his name and for the benefit of all humanity, we get this picture. And then the rising beauty of Jesus is seen in Ephesians 4.15. As well, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. 
This is what he does when he comes to dwell in us. We're now connected in a very intimate, personal way. In the metaphor of the body of Christ, Jesus is the head. He alone is the head. Don't make your pastors or leaders heads of anything. There's one head. It's Jesus Christ. Amen? It's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And all of us have a part to play. And each part is critically important. So the emphasis is on the we, which is greater than me. But in the midst of the me, you have a calling. And the Lord puts you together in the body with that calling, that unique impact that you're going to have in the world in which we live. And now I get to come to my text today to see the beauty of Christ rising in Ephesians 5.14 is the theme verse, the big picture of it. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up! It's the, it's the Easter story. The risenness of Jesus, the power of the resurrected Christ lives in you, and that power is available to you to make a difference in this world. And I love this promise that the, the light of, of Jesus Christ will shine on you. I want the light of Jesus to shine on my life. Raise your hand if you want the light of Jesus to shine on your life. Who doesn't want that? And then because it's shining in you, through you, it's going to echo back the very glory of God and people will pay attention to his church when otherwise we just want to derail it, put it in a different place. But he pulls it together and I love this wake up call for us. Um, in fact, in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, it, it, the literal Greek is uh, be imitators of God, but I like the paraphrase translation and explanation that Eugene Peter gives, Peterson gives in the message, and I want to read that, read that to you. It says, watch what God does, and then you will do it, and then do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, mostly what God, is, what God does is love you. That's what he does. He loves you. You think about it. He's ready to wipe you out or judge you. No, this is what God does. He loves you. Keep company with him. And learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. And he continues, his love was not cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Love like that. So when people say, Joel, you say this phrase all the time. Do you have to say it so much? No, I say it all the time because vision leaks. If we could only get the love thing right, there's no end to what God will do in and through us for his glory and for the benefit of all humanity. We just don't always get the love thing right, but we want to posture our lives to move in that given direction. So we find that Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that heaven and earth are coming together as one. There's a oneness here. Jew and Gentile are coming together as one. So the diversity we see taking place in the world around us is all taking place in a way that God is going to work through it to make his name known through the greatest migration in human history. We're witnessing it right now. And now we come to Ephesians 5, and he says man and woman would come together as one which was his original intent, and that through this gift or this covenant called marriage that it would display the, the glory of the Lord in powerful and beautiful ways. The rising beauty of Christ in marriage is so significant and a witness to the world. And so this is what he says, and I love that he borrows from the words of God himself in Genesis and from Jesus and Mark 10, because they had a low view of marriage, he's trying to restore the power, the mystery of oneness, and we read it in Ephesians 5.31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. How do two individuals so very different become one flesh? This is the mystery of it. Through Christ, and he's pointing to the relationship with Christ and the church. Christ births the church. There's this mystery of oneness that we have um, with him through the church. And it's seen in marriages and what God intended between a man and a woman in their relationship with each other. The oneness in marriage could be um, 
equated in the English word loyalty, intensely intimate loyalty that communicates the very love of God for us born in the church, but seen through the witness of marriages. It's, it's saying, have a high view of marriage. In a time when marriages are diminishing, the number of people getting married is less and less, 20% decrease in the last 18 years, in fact. But here's this high view of marriage. And so I wanna speak about four qualities or four loyalties in marriage that cause the beauty of Christ to rise so that we could see the display of God's glory even in marriage. Can I give a little caveat here because I'm so sensitive to how hard marriage can be. Wouldn't you agree marriage, for those who are married, is hard work? You can say that louder if you like. You're afraid to, I know. (laughs) Marriage is hard work. The best of marriages really come out of a yielding to one another in powerful ways. You have good days and great days and great seasons, but you have hard days, like, can I get through this day? And, you know, that's the reality. Some of you are in those kinds of marriages where it's just tough. I just want to say, the words that I'm sharing not to shame anybody. That is not my intention because I don't think shame motivates us. I'm trying to give us a glimpse of what God intended for marriage, that you would be motivated to want to grow, to humble yourself, to grow in the power of God, to bring these qualities to play. So that's what I'm gonna invite you to do. These four loyalties, you ready for them? I would say this too, if you're married, this might be a good place to take notes. And just jot it down for conversation later on rather than nudging your partner if they're here. If you're thinking about marriage, dream about the vision that God has for us. Just capture these four loyalties, and I'll just go through them briefly, but they're each so very important. And I'm gonna set them up with a story. It's a true story. And then I'm gonna bring these four loyalties into play in light of their story and in light of Ephesians' filter that um, speaks to these loyalties. True story, it was Christmas time. Got a call from a friend of mine who said, Joel, I have a couple who works for me in the marketplace. And he said, um, They're both working in the same company. Their marriage is in crisis. They're in their later 20s. They've only been married for five years. They're on their way to a divorce. They're gonna go tell their parents they're getting a divorce. I said, before you do that, I want you to meet with somebody, a pastor friend of mine. I was that pastor friend. And I said, well, are they Christians? No. Do they go to a church? No. I go, why would they meet with a pastor? He said, because I'm their supervisor and told them they had to. Okay. So there you go, supervisors, you got influence. And um, I said, get out of the way. If they call me, I'll meet with them. I met with them to this day, all these years later. I was 28, and I've never been in um, a couple's situation as heated, angry, intense, awful as that one. It just was unbelievable. They were clearly done. They had nothing left. Powerful story theirs was. She was in a car accident, almost died. Um, she was on her deathbed. Her husband didn't think she was gonna make it through the night. He was having an affair with another colleague of theirs and decided he couldn't live with himself unless he confessed that. So on her deathbed, he confessed this infidelity. She didn't die. Yeah. (laughs) So now there's a new day. The marriage is in crisis. They're at complete odds. They don't wanna be together. They're meeting with me because they have to meet with me. I'm 28. I'm way above my pay grade. I have no idea how to help these people. I really don't. And I'm listening, honestly, it was at least 30 minutes. And they're going back and forth with such anger, such mean-spirited words. And I go, damn it. Metaphorically, there was blood on the walls. I go, what, what could I say that would offer any hope to these, this, this couple? And, I, and I'm just praying, oh, God, help me. They need help. And, you know, and they came to me for help, but I go, they need help that, that I cannot give in this place. And I'm listening. I finally just said, stop. I got a GP, which we use around here to say a God prompting. It's one of my first introductions to the power of God promptings. And I just stopped. I said, don't say anything. And I said, let's, let's just be still for a moment. 
And this was the God prompting. I turned to him. He had had the affair, and I said, you've been married for five years. Back up the truck. When you got married, tell me one quality about this woman that caused you to say, yes, I want to marry you. Can I tell you, when you've been yelling at each other and you're filled with anger, it's really hard to say nice things. So I turned to her. I gave him a moment to think about it. I turned to her and said, would you be willing to share quality? Not now, but five years ago. Not where you are today. Five years ago. You said yes. Why did you say yes? And she, she said, no way am I sharing that. So now we're looking at each other. And I said, you know, I don't know why this came to me. We're not leaving until I said to him, you share one thing. We're not leaving. So we sat. Finally, he mustered up the courage, put out a word, a quality that he admired about her. She complimented it with another. And in that moment, I turned and I grabbed two pieces of paper off my desk and I wrote 10 qualities about this person that I most appreciated that caused me to say yes to marry you. And I went one, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I gave them each a sheet. I said, I've got an assignment for you. Before you get on the plane, do the assignment. And I said to him, you have to do it. And I said, I understand to the woman, you may not want to do it. Do this assignment. Put the ten qualities. When you get on the plane, I said to him, ask her if she did it. And if she says yes, exchange your papers. And then sit on it. Don't read them right away. Just sit on it. I didn't think I would see them again. In January, they called me. They did not um, tell their parents they were getting a divorce. They did the assignment, and they said, can we meet with you? We met together, never thought that would happen again, and they were different people. And I started to tune in to the simplicity of what makes marriages work when you compliment each other, when you're present with each other. I had the privilege to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ, so they had the new part, the new person in them, and they were open to learning what that new walk looked like. They stepped into that walk, and what a beautiful story. They're still married today. They have three children. They left the marketplace in corporate um, Twin Cities here and became farmers in Iowa, and it's working out really well for them. We should all become farmers, right? <laughs> Let me just walk through these four qualities and just pray that they inspire you to be motivated um, to grow in the ways of Jesus. Look, first of all, at attitudinal loyalty. That's the first loyalty. It's this attitude that's um, expressed through this way of how we are together in relationship. It's the attitude of reverence. We see it in Ephesians 5, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I want you to notice, first of all, it's mutual submission. It's mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. That is, how Christ loved you and his church, sacrificially, joyfully, voluntarily, so bring that attitude into your relationship with each other and God will exponentially bless that place and that spirit of togetherness there. If you've been here, you, I've, I've had the same definition of love um, since I was 28. It defined my definition of love, a hard word to define, but I, one of the simple definitions I have, it's a commitment to meet the need of the other when it's not your need. We're inclined to meet the need of the other when we get something in return. But to meet the need of the other when it's not your need, that's a Jesus kind of love. That's what he does for us. And we find this attitudinal loyalty elsewhere in Ephesians 5, verse 33. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's just a picture and a reminder to us that love and respect, respect and love, it's not about one doing it and the other. It's mutual submission. Love and respect is part of this gift of loyalty, of an attitude of loyalty. In fact, you could take those words and bring in the word cherish, that love and respect equals cherishing. 
And when you are loving and respecting, cherishing rises. And when you don't love and respect, you, you don't feel cherished. You don't feel valued. But when you do, it opens up the gateway to be together in mutual submission with each other to meet needs that aren't even your own needs because that's what God's love defined for us. So at every wedding since I was 28 years of age, that's how much power this couple had and influenced me as a young guy. I was just over my head, but it really stuck out to me, the simplicity of what it means to love in a way where that attitude is demonstrative. At every wedding that I've done, I've done the same thing. And some of you, I've officiated your weddings. I don't do so many anymore, but I've done the same thing. I have the the groom and the bride looking into each other's eyes. I call it an eye check. It's a cherishing moment. And I say these words, I'll use Joel and Carrie, our relationship. And I say uh, to the the groom, Joel, this is Carrie. Um, She is God's gift to you. Cherish her, treasure her, respect her, love her, serve her all of your days, and you will have a great marriage. And Carrie, this is Joel. He is God's gift to you. You treasure him. Cherish him, respect him, love him, serve him, and you will have a great marriage. See, we lose the gift of cherishing. And we have been given to each other as a gift from God. We cherish gifts that God gives to us. And without even realizing subtle ways, we just lose that gift. There's a powerful act. And the motivation to cherish comes from Jesus himself and how he loves the church. I've got to keep going with you. Verbal loyalty. It's just saying the words you use really do matter privately and in public. In fact, we find in Ephesians, we have a, a picture here of, for, for the whole body of Christ, but feeds into marriages, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place rather than thanksgiving. The words we use matter. And so in public, when you're speaking about your spouse, speak in a way that edifies and builds them up rather than takes them down. And if you do need help in your marriage, then choose carefully where you share words in public, best with a counselor, marriage therapist, or something, that you can get on the solution side of it so that you can honor the relationship with words in public and then privately do the same. In private, have words that build each other up in the privacy of your home to strengthen that bond of uh, of verbal love that um, allows beauty to rise. Boy, when the right words are spoken, beauty rises, and you go, that feels so good to say it that way. We've talked around here for years about the five power phrases. Please, thank you, I'm sorry, I forgive you, and I love you. Please, shows courtesy. Thank you, appreciation. I'm sorry, because you're gonna make mistakes. You're going to sin. I forgive you so you can move into the future. I love you because the greatest need is to be loved and to cherish. It makes a difference. God gives the fuel, the motivation, the strength, the willingness for us to do that. That new part, that new person in us is a game changer. And then physical loyalty. is the beauty of Christ rises with beauty when we're faithful and loyal with physical expression. That Jesus comes into the physical world and, he, and meaningful touch brings healing to people left and right. And so it is in marriage. Um, we think of marriage as bringing the freedom around sexual intimacy, but just meaningful touch. Carrie and I are always inspired when we see an elderly couple walking down a path hand in hand. Don't you guys love that warmth of that story? It says, I want to be that way when I'm 90 years old, walking hand in hand with the person that God gave me in this relationship. So meaningful touch is important, but so is sexual intimacy. And Paul gets pretty strong about it. He exhorts us 
in the body of Christ as a whole, which we need to hear today in the sexual freedom that we have. Sex comes from God. It was his idea. It was meant to be in covenant. And its beauty allows you to be free and to explore and enjoy. But he gives this warning to us in verse 3. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality because these are improper for God's holy people. Sexual immorality was everywhere. Because if you don't have Christ in you, the motivation not to go explore gets removed. But the quality of life is enriched when it's kept in covenant. This couple that I did the counseling with, they had gone outside of the covenant of relationship and it almost destroyed everything that God intended for good for them in that relationship. They brought it back into covenant and God has blessed. Then finally, there's a spiritual loyalty. We're no longer two, but one. Oh, the mystery of that is hard to take hold, but it's God's doing, and it's for God's display. He's showing his love relationship to the world, even through marriage. Our marriages become a light for a world that's really skeptical about marriages today, so we're bringing brought it back in to this call that Jesus has for us. And there's a call here specifically for men, and I, at first when I was a new Christian, I was reading through Ephesians, and I'm studying this for the very first time in my 20s, I'm going, wow, why did we get all this responsibility as men? And then I came to understand the direction a little bit more, but look what Paul says to us as guys in this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any blemish but holy and blameless. I just feel like that's way too much responsibility for a guy that I'm going to be called to present my wife Carrie to the Lord as holy, blameless, and pure. And I don't don't have those credentials. I go, oh, that's the point of it. Because of Jesus who is in me, I get to nurture a faith in her to present her to the Lord and thank him for the gift as Jesus does for the church that he loves and gave himself for, that he will present the church to the Lord this way. And as men, we have that responsibility to nurture, and the women do too, to nurture that relationship. You want it to be mutual as I opened up with. I just give you a few points of encouragement in marriage and even for the whole body of Christ. Worship together. Um, Pray together. Get out of this thing. I didn't grow up in a home where I paid, prayed out loud and publicly. I, get the, I, I grew up in the same kind of thing. But begin to learn how to pray. Privately, publicly, however it might be. Prayer is a powerful glue to this intimacy. Um, find yourself opening up the word. Because the word is full of life. Find a way to do that together in a small group or whatever. Serve the poor. Because Jesus comes to us through the poor. And when you, a husband and wife... Join hands together to serve the poor. It deepens the mystery of your oneness and brings the goodness of God and his glory everywhere. So I know that there's a lot of brokenness in marriages. And even as we gather today, I want to offer a prayer for you and invite you to offer a prayer for yourself with hope. I know that there's just brokenness in general everywhere. And I know there's brokenheartedness in our country right now. And I really want to take a moment for us to quietly pray and then pray what the Lord asked us to pray. And then I've invited our worship teams. I'm going to invite all the worship teams to make their way to the platform and uh, receive a prayer that our worship leader is going to sing over you and then invite us to join in. But I think we just need to pause and realize that there is a hope because of heaven and earth that's come together that wins the day. Let's move in that direction. Let me invite you to stand with me, and I'm going to stand with you too and hopefully remain standing. (laughs) Uh, so, and uh, if you might just, uh, if we do this all together, it's all in our comfort zone. Just open your hands to receive what God would have for you. 
So Father God, we come, we confess we're a broken people, but you've given us a vision of a new reality, heaven and earth coming together in Christ Jesus. Might we live the way of heaven on earth, of Jews and Gentiles coming together. Wow, we could use that unity together in oneness of men and women coming together in marriage, if that be your so desire to bring marriages. And so, Father, I just pray for brokenness, if there be brokenness in marriage, that they would be motivated to grow from where they are. In life, that we'd be motivated to trust the new part that's in us, the person of Jesus. But Lord, we just plead for mercy for our nation. We'd humble ourselves and pray, help us. We need to repent and confess of our sin. We are a broken nation, a broken people. And we're mindful of those that are dealing with loss today. In this moment of silence, just pray for your brokenness or the brokenhearted of those families who have lost loved ones. Lord, I, I wish in this moment we could just go on for hours. And I pray that everyone here would take time just to be still and go before the Lord over our brokenness, confess and welcome his healing, his hope, his peace and his love as heaven has come to earth and to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. And with every eye opened, join me in reciting together this beautiful prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen.